Sponsor Palo Alto Networks invites you to join their upcoming virtual event to learn about the latest in Prisma SASE, Cloud SWG, ZTNA 2.0, and SD-WAN. Sign up at start.paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy-signature-moment-2023.html. Or you can find the link in the show notes for this episode at packetpushers.net. Fortune 500 companies trust Interoptic for optical transceivers and cables. Since 2004, Interoptic has provided high-performance optics and cables at a fraction of the cost of OEM gear. Interoptic products are 100% tested and backed up by real engineers. Work with the optics experts at Interoptic. Find out more at interoptic.com slash packetpushers. On Heavy Networking Today, the third and final, at least for a while, episode where we are talking to folks about their home labs, and we're covering the lab of Martin Van Driessen's home lab. He's more in the virtualization space, where he's working with the VMware suite of products, including NSX, as well as infrastructure as code products like HashiCorp's Terraform and Packer, as well as Ansible. These use cases create a different hardware demand than you'd have running virtualized network operating system images, and Martin's going to explain all about it, including where he spent his money and where he discovered how to save some money. Martin, welcome to Heavy Networking. And uh, hey, man, uh, I think this is the first time you've ever been on the show. So in a sentence or two, would you tell the nice folks who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks for having me. So my name is Martin Andriessen. I'm a freelance infrastructure consultant working out of Belgium. Um, mainly focused on the virtualization space, and uh, I've been getting into NSX about two years ago. So uh, that's where my main use case for the lab uh, actually arose from. For NSX, okay. Well, th- then uh, before we talk about your lab itself and uh, all the nuts and bolts that make it up, tell us tell us why you lab. What what are your home lab use cases? What are you doing NSX stuff for? Uh, mainly just learning. Um, I, I like to learn by doing and get my hands dirty. I also like to experiment goes hand in hand. Um, uh, we all usually do that in production, right? We're all it people here. Um, but I decided not to break my customer's infrastructure and break my own. Uh, that would be safer, especially since I'm freelance. <laughs> so the, the learning then and uh, not experimenting on your customer's uh, infrastructure. Yeah, fair enough. But I take it the, the things that you're learning also go into what you're doing as a, as a consultant then, um, because the things that you're learning are now things you can recommend to customers or recommend against for customers, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. You don't always get to um, experiment with the the maxed out skew of every product uh, that there is. So um, getting to explore all those different features in in, a, in your home lab um, helps you to make the correct recommendations when a customer is, is choosing like, oh, do I take uh, version X of uh, product Y or do I take the other options? Um, helps you understand a bit better what they uh, hmm. what would be a right fit. Now, Martin, you and I were prepping for this show offline and having a chat, and uh, you mentioned that instructor-led classes don't really work for you, which now I did my time in the trenches as a consultant too, and took a lot of instructor-led classes. That was at the time like the way, you know, go to class, go learn the thing, get your certification, and then, you know, take that forward to consultants. But, but, but again, not you, you don't like to do the real-time instructor-led classes. How come? I have the extension span of a goldfish. That's a, a <laughs> quick summarization. Um, okay. I, I don't do very well in, in classroom settings. Uh, I was very happy when I was done with school. So um, there's that factor. But also, um, whenever you're in a classroom setting, I find it's highly dependent on the skill of the instructor. And if you've got a bad instructor, you also have a bad experience of that um, 
training. So I kind of wanted to get away from that a bit because you're always dishing out a lot of cash when you're in that classroom setting. Um, you can easily spend a couple thousand euros, dollars, whatever your currency is. Um, and if you have a bad instructor, that kind of feels like you're being ripped off, so to speak. Um, and there's a ton of great courses out there now. There's Udemy, there's plural sites. Uh, you can get a, a Terraform course for $20, for example. Um, so that's why I ended up going for the home lab combined with those courses. And that works better for me. Yeah. The, uh, the amount of content that's out there is extraordinary. Like you said, Udemy, Pluralsight, and you can spend kind of as much as you want. You can spend or a lot or a little on uh, online training, but the quality seems to keep generally speaking going up. You could spend $300 on a class or spend $30 on a class. And depending on a lot of things, the, the quality might be kind of similar uh, which is which is amazing and also depressing for those of us that like to create content and maybe sell it online. <laughs> it's kind of kind of a bummer. It's hard to sell things at a premium and uh, and you know and make any money on all the effort it is to put together courses. But but you're right. There's all those cho uh, choices out there. The thing about instructors, though, I thought was an interesting commentary uh, for your you certain instructors have put you off in the in the classroom setting because they're just not mm -hmm. very good at their job. And I have had that experience too. So I had a class I remember once where um, I went in there and the instructor was reading slides word for word. The instructor didn't have much knowledge of the product, especially they were just up there like literally reading slides and you ask them a question and the gentleman just, he really didn't know. Almost the answer to almost every single question was, uh, I'll have to look that up or I'll have to figure that out for you kind of thing which was hard to sit there for days and listen to that guy do his thing. I, I, I'm hoping you haven't run into anything that bad, but maybe you have. I had the exact same experience as you. Um, one was a, a trainer that completely had no clue what he was doing. I, I mean, outside of the, the course material that he'd given a dozen times and he could just recite that from memory. But then if you asked a question that was outside of the curriculum, then they would be like, um, I have no clue. You'll have to look that up. But then on the other hand, I did have uh, one instructor um, who also said, I have no idea. But the next day he came back and I looked that up, I tested it out and you have to do it like this and so and so. So then there's an added value, but mm. um, I find that to be the, uh, the exception. The, yeah, finding the instructors that are willing to go the extra mile uh, seems to be tough sometimes. Although I have had those, I have had those folks too that are just crush it. They, they come in and whatever they don't know, and you can't expect an instructor to know everything there is to know about every product and every circumstance. Some students like to walk in and use their instructor as a consultant because they're, they're there to learn the product, to solve this specific thing they got going on on the job. And if you can't solve that for them, they get irritated, which, which isn't fair. Um, you know, that's not fair to put the instructor in that, you're there to learn the product. They're not there. You're not there to get, uh, well, I was gonna say free consulting, but if you're paying for a class, you're probably paying, paying pretty, pretty good dollars to be there. But, uh, uh, now the best instructors that I've had, uh, Martin have been these folks that are instructors, but they, they were, or they still are consultants or hands-on kind of people because they would mm -hmm. tell you, here's the feature that we're learning today. And here's how I used it in production. And then they would talk through a scenario. Those people, it was like, teach me sensei. Yeah, absolutely. A buddy of mine is also a, a VMware instructor and he's like, yes, this is in the curriculum. If you're a customer ever asks you about it, stay away from that as far as possible because it will burn your stuff down. <laughs> um, so 
getting that kind of feedback as well as this is how it's supposed to work. Here's how it actually works. Uh, that's, that's very valuable. But again, it, I find that to be the exception in instructor-led trainings where you can get a lot of that on, on those, those Udemy things as well. Uh, if you mm. look at the, the consultants that publish a course on their spare time or publish a book, there's a lot of those tidbits in there usually. So publish in their spare time. I want to know where they get their spare time. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I agree, well, man. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about your lab, Martin. Uh, I, I want to talk about the evolution of your lab because uh, we were, again, we were prepping for the show. You told me that you used to run it at the house, but you ended up with a half rack at a colo. So, so walk us through that progression. Yeah. I kind of went overboard there. When I was built or thinking about getting a new lab, I thought about what I wanted to do with it. So um, I tried to do it like the, the VCDX way, uh, uh, the architect way. So get all my requirements and then assumptions, constraints, uh, yada, yada, yada. One of the factors was the wife acceptance factor, obviously, because I was going to run it in my house, uh, but I also needed it to be fast enough. So I ended up building it in, in just tower cases. So got server hardware, put it in tower cases and put that in a, a small metal casing in, uh, in the basement. That was pretty good. It was pretty quiet up, uh, until I added a UPS, then noise went up and, hmm. uh, then I got my first power bill and I had to pick off myself from the floor because it was more expensive than I anticipated. I did take power uh, consumption into consideration. I think my entire lab runs at about 650 watts, just all the hosts and switch and all that jazz, but still costs a pretty penny. You think they're drawing 650 watts or that would be like max load if you add up all the power? Supply? No, that's on average. That's what okay. I saw in my UPS, uh, the average draw was. Okay. So that, okay. So that, that's, so you decided at that point to move it up to, uh, to a colo? Yeah, that's correct. So I, I went shopping around uh, and again, power consumption um, was a thing. So, so I tried to look around for the cheapest um, price per kilowatt hour. Uh, in the end, I think I, I got a pretty good deal. I got a half rack now in a colo with uh, a flat fee for my power consumption because my power consumption is just steady. So uh, yeah, that worked out great. Was it cheaper than running it at, at your house? It costs a bit more because you also pay for the housing and the cooling and the monitoring yeah. and stuff like that. But um, the price for the power, uh, just the power is cheaper there, yeah. Hmm. Okay. What about public cloud? Did you consider labbing, like you know, setting something up temporarily in GCP or Azure or whatever? I used to do that when uh, Ravello was still a thing. Before oh, Oracle Ravello, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Oracle I, Bot, I right. played, yeah, played around in that a lot. But um, after that, it kind of went away uh, from public cloud. I only use it for offsite backup for my, my private pictures and stuff like that. Um, when I got the lab again, I decided to not shoot myself in the foot and put everything just in the data center, but also have an offsite uh, backups location in Azure in this case. Uh, but also I uh, got a VPN going, put a domain controller in there. So in case my lab breaks down, I can still rebuild everything from the same users and domain name and stuff like that makes my life uh, a lot easier. Okay. You said back up your lab environment. My brain kind of went doink you know for a second there because it's a lab environment why do you need to back it up but I, I think i see where you're going here if you've got a complex lab environment and there's a lot to it you don't want to have to rebuild all that from scratch so is that what you're talking about when you're talking about backing up yeah there's there's that factor but there's also the factor that i'm a consultant that also works with backup products so i'm also testing those out so <laughs> it kind of goes hand in hand there 
<laughs> I see. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, um, we'll talk about your server hardware then, because, um, I think you build some pretty beefy boxes to do, to do what it is that you're labbing. Uh, yeah. So I built a, a four, a four node cluster. So this is all based on, on VMware technology. Um, from a hardware point of view, as I said, I started with the tower cases, but in the end moved to just super micro to U rack mount servers. I put in an ASRock rack Rome A2D um, motherboard in there, which has just like a ton of PCIe lanes. I just wanted to buy a motherboard and be able to expand basically indefinitely. Um, fun fact, if you put ASRock rack motherboards in super micro, chassis you can't use the power buttons because supermicro apparently has a proprietary connector so watch out for that <laughs> that's stuff you learn by doing that as well uh and for the rest from yeah those those cpus they have eight cores uh they've got plenty of gigahertz so pretty uh, they pack a punch so to speak yeah so again the amd epic eight core uh, uh eight core box i'm mm -hmm. oh, sorry eight core cpu was that motherboard a dual socket or you just got the one cpu the one CPU, yeah. Okay. Going up to dual socket just increases the price dramatically. And I wanted to keep the budget a bit under control. It did cost me quite a bit, but um, I wanted to keep it within limits. That's why I also started with 128 gigs of RAM, which already went up to 256 and it's probably going to be increasing more and more because RAM goes away quickly in a lab, especially if you're running virtualization stuff. And then from a storage point of view, I just added some Samsung NVMe drives in um, every server, and I use that to build vSAN storage. Yeah, and, and so NVMe, I'm assuming SSD um, drives uh, running NVMe protocol. Okay. Yeah. So you went for performance there more than capacity, I'm guessing? So from a capacity point of view, I did not want to skimp two bits so i think every server uh, i added a couple disks uh, a few weeks ago so every server now has a four terabytes uh, worth of drives in there um, together with the one terabyte caching drive so that brings me up to i think about 24 terabytes of, of usable storage which is quite a bit mm -hmm. um, but because i used consumer grade hardware you do notice whenever you put load on there that they just flunk um, hmm. you're, you're getting latency spikes and stuff like that. But for general purpose, what I'm doing with that, it's plenty. Uh, this is not like I'm running production on there. Yeah. And for, for my lab, I have a mix of SSDs and, uh, and spinning rust. And when I need that workload, whatever the virtual machine is that I'm spinning up to be faster, it really makes a big, big difference, especially for spinning it up and shutting it down. If it's running off of an SSD. You know, hundred percent. If that's where the data store is, now, I'm not running vSAN. I'm just running. I just have a single big box that has a bunch of drives in it. Uh, but that's definitely been the way for me to go. I I have a few uh, VMs that I don't mind if they're slower and they'll run off an old, whatever. It's a one or two terabyte, fifty four hundred RPM, just again spinning Rust drive, just sitting there doing its thing. But I can feel the difference when I'm starting up or or shutting something down. So now you also mentioned a, a caching drive, as in that's part of how you did the vSAN configuration. Yeah, that's part of the the architecture of the that storage layer. Um, so you, what I did was put a, a bit faster SSD in the caching tier. And then uh, some slower SSDs that don't have that much DRAM cache and stuff like that uh, as a capacity tier. 
Mm-hmm. Now VMware changed the way that that vSAN architecture works, or they added some some new architecture. So uh, I changed that around a bit as well. Um, but that that's also part of labbing. It always keeps evolving when a vendor brings up something new, and you have to adapt and sometimes purchase new hardware, which is why I also got twenty five gig networking. <laughs> twenty five gig networking too. Okay, so how many total servers do you have that are in this uh, in this half rack? Just four. Four, okay. Four yep. with, and you ended up with 24 terabytes of total storage, which it all feels like a lot. So every box has got the eight cores. Every box has got 120 gig of RAM. Uh, that also kind of makes sense as to why you don't care so much about how many cores you have you know, per box in that you've got cores per, per box. You've got uh, so yep. a whole bunch of cores you can, you can deal with. Since in my world, I've consolidated it down to one server. The number of cores I have to work with matters to me more. I have I have two CPUs on this motherboard um, with eight cores a piece for a total of sixteen. I wouldn't want to have less than that for the labs that I'm building for sure. You get you get constrained awfully fast. Yeah, again, it comes down to to your requirements. For me, I wanted to I, I do some consolidation, so I, I run more. CPUs on those physical cores, then that would actually be be possible if you run it uh, unvirtualized, so to speak. But still, in the end, the CPU is idling a lot in a lab environment. You see that in production as well. CPU in general is isn't super busy. Memory is what goes away fast. We pause the podcast briefly for sponsor Palo Alto Networks to invite you to a virtual event. The event is titled Prisma Sassy, AI-Powered Innovation Takes Center Stage. And what that title is getting at is this. Palo Alto Networks is continually updating their Prisma Sassy, Cloud Secure Web Gateway, ZTNA 2.0, and SD-WAN product portfolio. And this event catches you up with the latest features that have been baked into the solution set. Another way to think about it is this. You need budget to upgrade the remote access and security infrastructure, right? Well, are you finding your IT spend curtailed because, hey, we might be having a recession? Then Palo Alto Networks wants the chance to explain how you can reduce your IT spend by consolidating your current SASE solution into their offerings. Well, how does that work? Okay, if you do the consolidation in the one vendor thing, licensing advantages you get working with a single vendor. You get improved interoperability. You get automation to some of the complex tasks that you're probably performing artisanally by hand today. Attending a virtual event like this gives you time to focus and absorb exactly what's going on so that you can clearly present to management why this is a solution that you should be evaluating for the company that you support. To sign up, head over to start.paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy dash signature dash moment dash 2023.html. Or find the link in the show notes for this episode at packetpushers.net. Now, I, I know that was a long URL here, so let me run through it one more time. That is start.paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy dash signature dash moment dash 2023.html. Or again, go to the show notes for this episode at packetpushers.net and you will find the link there. And now back to today's podcast episode. What's your take on buying used server hardware off of eBay instead of building new like you did? It has its place. I mean, it helps uh, keep the e-waste problem under control. So uh, there's that. Plus, you can get some pretty great deals of hardware that's still very much supported by all the software for not a lot of money. 
which is something that's that's a challenge for me because I'm building everything out myself. Um, especially for VMware, they have a, a hardware compatibility list. So whenever I want to buy something new, uh, I have to check, is it on that list? Will it work? Uh, sometimes you buy stuff and it doesn't work. Like I had a couple of weeks ago with, uh, with some other uh, SSD adapters. Um, that's just a risk you, you take. Whereas if you buy branded hardware, you can generally assume that it's on DHCL and you can, you can get that going without that much effort. But yeah, so again, you're not against it, but as I know, uh, no. someone else I interviewed, they were big on HP ProLiant, like Gen 8s seemed to come in at a good price point. And if you, you paid attention to how much the thing shipped with, you could get it configured with a bunch of storage and a bunch of memory in it and do, do yourself pretty, pretty nicely by a box like that. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's nothing wrong with those. Uh, for me, it was a matter of those Gen 8 servers that are pretty prevalent on, on eBay and stuff like that, but they're going out of support for the newer versions of VMware. So yeah. I kind of wanted to buy new so that I mm -hmm. could use the stuff that I bought for a longer period of time. I've done a mix of both. I've bought used stuff off of eBay and I've also built new as well. And you do get some longevity out of the newer stuff, but... Um... But everything's a trade-off. Yeah, I ended up spending more money to to build that box, uh, build the boxes I built myself. But okay, twenty-five gig networking. Really? What was that just for fun, or did you have a use case for twenty-five gig? Uh, that was not my original intention. When I bought the lab, I was going for ten gig. So the switch that I bought had just twenty ten gig ports, but also had four twenty-five gig ports on them. So when VMware changed the architecture of vSAN, they they also up the bandwidth requirements to 25 gigs. So I was like, yeah, I could just buy four Mellanox cards with 25 port gig ports on them and just use those four ports that are on my switch. I have four servers, so it made sense. So now each server has one 25 gig port just to run the storage and then everything else just goes over the, the 10 gig NICs. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not a, a vSAN guy, so I wasn't aware that there was a 25 gig requirement to run vSAN. So that's as in it flat out won't run if you're uh, only giving it 10 gig? It'll work. But if you're running into performance issues and you open a ticket with VMware, they're going to say, oh, my dear friend, you are you didn't read the minimum requirements. So, <laughs> <laughs> My dear friend. <laughs> <laughs> Don't they speak well, to you like that? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, oddly. No, it doesn't, doesn't come across that way all the time. Uh, <laughs> So what network switch did you end up with to drive this thing then? 25 gig is a, a slightly exotic, I guess. Yeah, I, I went with an fs.com switch because for a, a price point of view, they were pretty great. If you want to know the type, an S5860-20SQ sounds sexy. Mm -hmm. It's got 20 10 gig ports, four 25 gig ports, and then two 40 gig ports, which was pretty okay for what I uh, would want. And that cost me um, 1160 euros. So not a whole lot of money for what I'm getting, actually. Now, did, did, this, did you need to buy optics or uh, copper assemblies to do the interconnect? I use DAC cables for, uh, for okay. that because that's easier. I don't want to fiddle around with fiber cables or, or uh, optics. I did go uh, for some RJ45 optics uh, to put in there or mm -hmm. SFPs uh, just to connect my IPMI ports. Uh, will the 10 gig ports actually go down to one gig ports then? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The 25 gig ports don't, but the 10 gig ports, they do. Okay. So it says FS.com switch, the S5860-20SQ. 
All right. Well, what is this thing? I mean, do you, I don't know if you're into the networking side as much as a lot of the listeners of this podcast might be, but uh, does the network operating system feel familiar to you, like a Cisco box or a Juniper box or something? It does feel like a Cisco clone. I did some CCNA when I was in college, so it did feel familiar. And I showed it to a network colleague of mine and he was like, yeah, this is pretty much a Cisco clone. Um, I'm not entirely sure what NOS is on there. It, it lists it as a, a Broadcom proprietary software thing, but could be just something they, they box together. I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, but I, it does everything that I, that I want it to do. Uh, I can set up BGP peering with uh, NSX and stuff like that and do some uh, routing, which is covers all my use cases. I can do VLAN tagging, which is pretty basic again, but still uh, covers all my requirements. So it was a pretty good fit. Hmm. And if you bought it from FS.com, then it was new. It was new. Yeah, brand new. Hmm. Have you had to call FS.com for support? No, not once. I usually call my uh, network colleagues if something breaks. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned IPMI ports and you bought some uh, uh, copper uh, modules so that you could connect up to the IPMI ports. Is that how you're doing all of your out-of-band stuff? I that was the way I did it when it was still running in my basement. Um, I did change it up when I moved it to the colo. I bought a separate 24 port um, gigabit switch also from fs.com. Um, I believe it was fs.com. I'm not entirely sure anymore. Sorry. Um, but I hooked that switch up um, to my firewall directly so that I could just VPN in and just ah, okay. open IPMI like that because I don't want to shoot myself in the foot. Yeah, so if the 5860 goes goes down or something, right, then you've got a... Yeah. You, so you have a true out-of-band management. I mean, it's well, the firewall is still a single point of failure. You're not, you didn't set up anything with a dial-in or LTE or you know 5G so you could backdoor it that way. You no. still got to be able to get to the rack via the internet. But um, Yeah, that's correct. But yeah. again, the, the colo is uh, five kilometers from my door, so it's not a huge deal if I have to go there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's still a thing because it takes time out of your day. But um, just plugging it into the firewall directly, it's a, it's a PFSense box, so it's rock solid. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that just PFSense. works. And uh, that was my experience with PFSense, too. It just worked. It just it was rock solid. Upgrades are pretty predictably easy. And, uh, yeah, I had no trouble with uh, with my PFSense box back when I ran it. I don't run it anymore. I went I went with an all-ubiquity system in my uh, my home network at this point. But, uh, but yeah, I had uh, very good luck with my PFSense box back in the day. Um, so what software are you running on these servers? I mean, you're a VMware guy, so I'm assuming they're all running ESXi or something else. Yeah, that's correct. They're all running ESXi. Um, I do have like the entire stack of VMware on top of that. So I've got the, the NSX stuff. I've got the Avi, I mean, NSX advanced load balancer, force of habit. Um, uh, right. There, it used to be uh, Avi networks before VMware. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just run the entire suite and power on um, what I need as as needed. Um, there's stuff that keeps running all the time, NSX, Avi, stuff like that just keeps running all the time. But there's other VMs that I turn off when I'm testing uh, backup software or, uh, I don't know, Netbox or something like that. If I don't need it anymore, I just shut it down. And then there's some automatic cleanup script if I let it stay down for, I think, 180 days now. Is the point of shutting it down, I mean, you, you said you have a flat cost to your power consumption. So is the point of shutting it down just to reclaim resources in the uh, in the cluster? 
Yeah, pretty much that. Um, I don't want to keep stuff running that I'm not using. Uh, again, I'm a goldfish. So if I don't shut it down, it means I'm still using it. And if I do the conscious act of shutting it down, it means I'm going to clean it up anyway. But I automate it that way. So if I shut it down after 180 days, it gets automatically cleaned up. And what do you mean clean up? What is the tell, tell us what the automation is and does. It's just a PowerShell script that looks at when a virtual machine was shut down. And if it hits that 180 day threshold, it just deletes the VM outright. Hmm. That's, that's tough love right there. But, but that's, it's interesting. I mean, you, you, you do that in that I, if I've gone that long without powering on a VM, if I power it up, I'm not going to remember where I was or what I was working on or what the status of the thing is. So I might as well be starting from scratch at that point. Six months is just, it's too long. It's impractical. So that's, I see why you did that. Yeah. And it keeps my, my mainly storage cons uh, consumption and memory consumption uh, under control. If I don't use it anymore, there's no point in keeping it on there. Um, Besides, it ties into my infrastructure as code learning. Uh, if I want to have something that I want to spin up again, I just put it in Terraform and then spin it up again like that and pick up where I left off. Hmm. Do you build all of the ESXi hosts from scratch or do you, do you stand them up with Terraform or some other tool? I don't use Terraform for that. Um, I've got uh, Kickstart scripts. That's uh, a VMware-specific uh, thing for for spinning up ESXi hosts. So I've got a Kickstart script that just runs uh, if I have to reinstall one, which happens more than I'd like to admit. Um, but uh, yeah, that's pretty much the most stable foundation of my lab. I, I don't like to... I try to treat it as production, my ESXi hosts, because the hassle of setting it up again is still is still a thing uh, you have to add it again to vcenter have to ip it again have to mm. uh connect it back to the distributed switch and stuff like that so i try to keep that as stable as possible and whenever i'm doing some exotic stuff i, I usually whenever i'm trying to spin up uh, some exotic stuff i usually spin up a, a nested lab oh really you <laughs> <laughs> You'll go to that trouble, huh? Um, so exotic stuff, meaning you're putting a piece of software on to the VMware environment that's going to change things in some significant way, and you're what worried that if it's not going to cleanly uninstall and kind of leave artifacts behind, and you don't want to deal with that headache? Or It's usually when I want to try some, some more exotic configuration of the hosts themselves, um, where I could potentially break my lab by, by misconfiguring it, and I don't want to go through the hassle of setting the lab up completely again from scratch. So that's why I opt for the nested option because that just mm. gives me some safeguard there. Let's pause for a message from our sponsor, Interoptic. Interoptic is the optical transceiver and cable specialist that maximizes your IT savings while minimizing network failures. Interoptic provides high-performing optics at a fraction of the price of brand name optics. The Interoptic experts can help you spec the best optical transceivers and cables for your network environment. Interoptic optical transceivers are 100% guaranteed to be operationally equivalent with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, Brocade, Palo Alto, and many other switches and routers. Due to Interoptic's deep optical transceiver technical experience, they can ensure that all messages, alerts, alarms, and threshold data are equivalent to OEM brands. Interoptic deploys rigorous 100% testing on their devices before they're shipped. Interoptic optical transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the exact same manufacturing lines. That's why insurance companies 
companies, retailers, financial services, and federal and state government customers deploy optics and cables from InterOptic. You can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and backed up by real engineers at a fraction of OEM costs. Find out more at interoptic.com slash packetpushers. That's interoptic.com slash packetpushers. And now back to the podcast. Any use case for bare metal? Yeah, my ESXi host himself, they run well, bare metal. Well, I know but, that, but I mean, uh, aside from throwing you know, throwing the hypervisor on top, I mean, would you ever put, I don't know, Linux on a box and do do something with it that way? No, I'm a virtualization consultant. That <laughs> goes against everything I stand for. Uh, <laughs> No, I I don't have any use case for physical stuff. I did have a a, a NUC lying around that I was thinking of putting uh, in the rack as as like a in case of emergency jump box. But then I added the out of band management switch to the uh, the VPN port of my my firewall, and that solved that issue. So, yeah, I, I have one um, Apple Mac uh, Mini uh, Mac, and the Mac Mini is still running whatever flavor of a Mac OS on it, just for Wireshark. So it stands it stands apart from the rest of the lab so it can run Wireshark independently. Um, I could run Linux on it. I think I have run ESXi on that box before, but, uh, but at the moment it's running Mac OS just for Wireshark. Just to have one box that's not in the middle of the lab and couldn't be, I don't wanna say corrupted by the lab, but impacted by whatever's going on on the lab host to uh, to stand outside things and uh, and run Wireshark and I and I can rem- remote desktop into it and run it that way and it works just fine. Um, there are things I've been interested in doing bare metal uh, work with. Some of what's going on in the Linux networking world is is very interesting. Uh, what's happening with network operating systems or software that can use Linux XDP, for example. I was chatting with some folks who run an open source project called LibreQOS, and they use Linux XDP to do do fancy queuing and so on. It's a LibreQOS is targeted at um, ISPs who are trying to, and they want to have a better quality of experience for their users. Well, I would need a bare metal box to to do this. You can do it with virtu- virtualized. You can run LibreQOS in a Linux host that has been virtualized onto some kind of hypervisor, but for maximum performance, if you want all the throughput, then you know bare metal is the way to go. I just don't happen to have a box uh, or NIC in hand that could handle that. There are there were certain requirements, but I was very interested in that. And uh, but as you say, you're a virtualization consultant, so um, so that's just where you live. That's your that's your yeah. bread and butter for sure. How much did you spend on all this, Martin? Man, it sounds like you put some real money into this thing. Um, yeah, I, I I wrote a blog post about that uh, as well, and I had to look it up again because I've forgotten already. Initially, when I purchased it purchased it, it was um, 11 grand in, in euros. So that's mm. quite a bit of money. But in the end, if you pay for, have to pay for two, three, four uh, instructor-led courses, which I don't get a lot of value out of, then it just earns itself back after two or three years. So that's why I, I had no issue justifying the, the cost of the, the actual lab. And did you drop 11,000 euros out of the gate or did you start with some initial investment then over time you added more and more? No, that was the initial investment that I dropped. I think I, I spent four or 5,000 more since then just upgrading the boxes and stuff like that. Yeah. And then there's the, the monthly bill of the colo, obviously. Hmm. Again, I'm a consultant. I use that for myself. Um, I'm freelance as well, so I can just write that off as a business cost. It doesn't hmm. cost me a lot um, if you 
take everything into consideration. Yeah, the the write-off thing is um is not to be understated. I have the same thing where if I buy anything for my lab, I can write that off as a business expense, you know, and that that matters to me. I've got all those things itemized. I track all that stuff in my accounting software so I can report it appropriately. And that's a big deal. I don't know how that works for the average person who's working for a company and they're working on certifications in their spare time. If they're buying a lab and they don't have a a business, you know, they're not an independent consultant. I don't know how you take it as a business expense if you don't have a business to expense it against. I don't know how it works in in Europe or Belgium specifically, Martin, but in the US, it isn't all that hard to set up an LLC and uh, it's fairly inexpensive. It might be worth it for some folks that are interested in doing that. Set up an LLC, as a, set yourself up as a contractor, and maybe you can expense that way. Talk to an accountant. I am not an accountant. I am not a lawyer. But uh, Caveat. I think that, yeah, yeah, but I think that might be possible. Um, uh, I, I think it would be be possible to do that here as well, but you need to have some income uh, in, yeah. your, uh, in your LLC here. Again, talk to talk to your accountant or IT people. Don't trust us. <laughs> yeah, for me, I mean, I, all my money comes in because as I'm a I'm a contractor for all the various businesses that I uh, that I do work for. So that all works out for me. It's all very straightforward. There's nothing questionable about it at all. Uh, but I'm not sure. Again, if you just wanted to be able to do that, so you could study and uh, you know expense the the pricing of a lab. You know how you do that. Although not everyone's going to need to spend as much as you spent. On a lab. I mean, you got four hosts no, and a lot no. of storage and a lot of memory and you know colo, and you're into it pretty deep. You could start for a whole lot less money than than you did and still get a lot of effective lab work done. I mean, if you, if you're a gamer, chances are you already have a decent computer. Just drop VMware Workstation or VirtualBox on there, and you're good to go. You can do yeah. a lot with uh, 32 gigs of memory or 64 gigs of memory. So yeah, there's really no re- need yeah. to go overboard like I did. But there's people that spend a lot more than I did. So I'm, I'm like right in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> and you're modeling you know, all the, the VMware stuff, a lot of which is pretty resource intensive too, which is another thing. You know, If you don't need to model all the stuff that Martin is, then I guess uh, you could get away with less hardware, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. If you just want to play around with ESXi, I mean, you can get that going on, on a Raspberry Pi. So mm-hmm. it can be pretty inexpensive to get going. It all depends on your use case and requirements. Something else we should bring up, Martin, is how you paid for the VMware licenses. You've got a whole bunch of stuff running in there that if you were an enterprise, you would have paid dearly for, but you did not pay dearly. I paid um, zero euros, to be exact. <laughs> so for my VMware licenses, I'm a VMware V expert. So it's, uh, you can compare that to Microsoft MVP or, or Cisco Champion, uh, those kinds of programs. So they give you free licenses because you advocate for their so that's one thing. And then on the other hand, I also have the VMUG Advantage subscription. That's the word I was looking for. Um, because I'm a VMUG leader, I also get that for free. But uh, a while back, I also paid for that. It's 200 euros and there's usually a 10% discount code you can find anywhere on the internet or they they send out emails with that. And it also includes all the licenses. It gives you discounts on exams. It gives you discounts on uh, going to VMware Explore going to instructor-led courses. So there's a lot of value in that VMUG Advantage uh, subscription. Yeah, the VExpert and those other kind of programs that you mentioned, those are selective. It's not like anybody out there can get into those programs. It, those are marketing programs. And marketing folks want you as a VExpert, as a Cisco champion, whatever the program is that you're a part of, 
they bring you into those because you're an influencer. You have a podcast or you have a popular blog or you're active on Twitter. You know, you're, you're engaged with the social media community in some way. And they, it's, I, I guess you can apply, but uh, it's by invitation only for some of them. I, I don't know exactly what the criteria are to get into them other than it's not open to the average mortal, if you know what I'm saying, Martin. Yeah, for, for the expert program, you can apply anytime you like. That's free to try. There are some some requirements that are looked at. So you need to be active as a blogger, YouTube or a podcast, whatever. Just being active in the community and, and spreading the, the message that VMware uh, is bringing. So there's that. It's the same for any of those advocacy programs. It, it, yeah. You pay f- with your um, outreach in, in essence. So. Yes, you're, you're right. You you get some benefits to be a part of the program, but the program leaders are anticipating that you're going to be doing some advocacy, some amount of, of influencing, if you will, on behalf of the brand. That is how those work. Now, the VMUG Advantage, that's a different thing. Anybody can just sign up to become a VMUG member and then sign up for a VMUG Advantage subscription for 200, you said it was 200 euros uh, over in Europe, yeah. it's $200 in America. Um, and that's an annual subscription that gives you a 365 day license to, I don't know if it's everything in the VMware catalog or not, Martin, but I mean, it feels like it. It's an awful lot of stuff. It is everything. Uh, at one point there was uh, a couple of licenses that were missing from the, the VExpert program that were in the VMAG Advantage program. That was the initial use case for, uh, for signing up for that. But um, there's so much in that program. It, it's silly. You get 20, 20 or 30% discount on training and exams. Uh, so there's there's a whole lot coming back to you for that 200 euros or dollars that you, that you put down. Now, I'm not a big VMware user. I'm not consulting about VMware particularly. I mean, I'm very focused more on the, uh, the network side of things. But I still use uh, VMware stuff because it's the easiest way to run my lab. I love vCenter. I love uh, and, and ESXi. Those two core things, just, just that alone is worth 200 bucks a year to me. Just to have those current license, I'm running... I haven't got a vSphere 8 upgrade yet. I'm on still on vSphere 7, but I mean, still, the functionality there that I get to be able to layer that with uh, vCenter on top to do cloning, you know, standing up new VMs very quickly is just, it just makes the part of the labbing experience easier. There are things you don't have to think about when you just got ESXi sitting underneath there. Um, I, I love that. Plus, as you said, Martin, if I was really into the VMware uh, world, there's a whole lot more uh, advantage that goes on there. So again, VMUG advantage, just look that up. And, um, if that's interesting to you, $200, 200 euros a year. Um, I, I think it's worth the money for, for sure. I think it's a great program and I wish, I wish all the vendors had programs like this. Honestly, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. If, if somebody else, uh, is thinking of how can I get people more engaged as a, as a brand, just do what they do. <laughs> <laughs> Now, okay, so we've talked about how you're keeping your costs down in your your lab for licensing and so on. Are there any other uh, tips that you want to pass along? For example, you've done some work in public cloud. Those costs always scare me because they seem like they could run away from me. How do you keep those costs down? I use the credits that I get from my action pack because I do run uh, some uh, Microsoft software in my lab as well, Windows Server and stuff like that. So I didn't want to go the... Uh, 
the uh, illegal route. So I bought the action pack, which uh, grants me a couple of licenses, but it also gives me a hundred euros of monthly Azure credits. So I keep my consumption within that budget, which can be tricky sometimes. If I, I spin up a, an additional VM, that hundred euros is gone pretty quickly. Uh, if you look at it over a month. So the key to keeping your cloud costs under control is if you don't use it, shut it down immediately and uh, don't oversize anything. I did another show on Home Lab earlier this year with a gentleman who had spent a lot of time automating his GCP environment for standing up the environment, uh, getting different instances running that he needed to get running. And then when he was done, having it all be shut down so he could control those costs. It went I've been out of his way with some really slick automation to make all of that happen. Because uh, that that may be the key. I mean, yeah, credits are great if you can get them and the, all the cloud providers have different ways you can get a certain amount of credits. Plus there's the free tiers and so on. But if you can automate standing up and tearing down, that's going to save you a lot of headache. Because it may not be what you're using as much as what you leave on when you're not using it. That's just burning away money that there's for no reason, for no reason at all. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time somebody got a, a credit card bill that uh, that was very big because they left a, a GPU instance online somewhere. So, <laughs> exactly right. Uh, so, Martin, for folks who are getting into home labbing, what resources do you recommend to help them get started? There is a ton of content out there in the the VMware blogging space. So, if you just look up VMware Home Lab, there's a ton of resources, but there's one thing in particular that I want to call out, which is William Lamb's Home Lab collection. Uh, he posted that on his GitHub. I think the uh, link will be included in the show notes. But um, it's got a collection of all different kinds of uh, Home Lab configurations. There, anybody can submit their configuration to that. It's a collection of people that built a Home Lab with the, the specifications of what they did, what they're running on there, how much it cost them. So it ranges from, I don't know, 100 or 200 euros for people that built Raspberry Pis. But then there's also some other guy in Germany that uh, spent over $100,000 on his home data center. So. Oh my. <laughs> They even excluded him from the average just to keep it under control. <laughs> <laughs> right. Guys, I can't blow on the curve. Uh, yeah. Martin, this has been a fun discussion. I love talking about labs. This has been a great way to, uh, to kick off 2023 with these various discussions. And uh, if people want to follow you, follow up with questions, are there, how, how do they reach out to you over the internet? The easiest way would be to go to my Twitter page or to my blog. Uh, my blog is briskit.net uh, with a dash in between. And then on Twitter, uh, you can find me as uh, at M van Driessen. M van Driessen, M-V-A-N-D-R-I-E-S-S-E-N. And That's those correct. links, along with the link to the GitHub page with uh, William Lamb's collection, that's all going to be at the show notes. The show notes will be on packetpushers.net. Head on over there, look at the header to podcast, hit a heavy networking, and then find the show from March the 3rd, 2023 for all of those links. And that is going to do it for today's episode. Now, before you go, free stuff for you on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. Number one, we have a Slack group, packetpushers.net slash Slack. Number two, a new podcast, at least new within the last few months there, Kubernetes Unpacked. You can find it in your podcast app or at packetpushers.net slash subscribe. We have a newsletter that is called Human Infrastructure Magazine. Every Thursday, we offer good technical content, industry news summaries, and lulls, funny memes and stuff for the end of your week. 
And then we have a YouTube channel. That channel has long form presentations about deeply technical topics, vendor product demos, and educational series for IT engineers. That's all at youtube.com slash packet pushers network. And just search for packet pushers and we'll turn up there. Everything else we have to offer, including opinion pieces, engineering blogs, and white papers about networking and IT, that's all at packetpushers.net. We are here to make you better at your job, professional career development. If you do the socials, you can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers and on LinkedIn. If you want to follow along with me about this show, I'm at EC Banks on Twitter. Use the follow-up form at packetpushers.net slash F-U. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.